Heidegger forward. So that's some big figures. So if you want to, you'll probably just want to focus on Heidegger, Sartre, Lacan, Foucault, Derrida. You can probably leave, leave uh, Levi Strauss out of the mix. So those are the five thinkers that you'll you'll need to understand. And it'll be a five-question examination, same style that it always is. Defend from the position of the philosopher. All right, so let me pray for us, and we'll get moving. Let us pray. Lord, teach us. Teach us the text. Lord, teach us today as we hear some of the wisdom of Jacques Derrida, that we could understand that you are the eternal word written in time in your Son. Lord, beckon us to the Incarnation as we consider this text. It's the name of Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I've talked about Derrida in this class, bits and pieces here and there, and really glamorized him. And I'm today going to try to explain some of his ideas. Derrida has that kind of appeal that Lacan has, in which you kind of see something that you hadn't seen before. A sort of an inversion of things that have always been, a sort of turn in philosophy that some people think is the end of philosophy. Derrida has been kind of given the, attributed the responsibility of killing metaphysics, of killing philosophy and the ideas that philosophy has always shot for. Uh, some people think Derrida is just a charlatan and kind of a, a rebel who's trying to stir the mix up. Either way, he is, it's incontrovertible that you have to pay attention to the things that he's said. And I think you'll find that evident in what he has to say today. Uh, Derrida's background, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of background on Derrida and then give you a quick highlight as to his overall project and then give you, and I misspelled it, and I think there should be a C there yeah. in Jock, um, and give you a little bit of some of his main points or main ideas, give you his overall project some of the details of that idea. The background, in short, is he's born into a Jewish family. He's Jewish by ethnicity. Um, he's also born in Algeria, which is northern Africa, but ends up moving to France, where he spends most of his life. So he's, no, he's known as a French philosopher. He also faces uh, discrimination as a young man. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the text that I was working with indicated that he was actually kept out of certain schools at one point because they could only have a certain limited amount of Jewish population. So he wasn't allowed to go to school at this certain particular place or, or teach at these certain schools because he was Jewish. So um, Some people think that this is significant because they think it leads to Derrida's emphasis on the lowly or the quote-unquote other, the marginalized. Um, but Derrida himself says it doesn't have any effect on him, but some people think it does. That's just a general background uh, on Derrida, but the, the influences are the important component. He's very much a student of Husserl and phenomenology. He's influenced by Heidegger openly, by Husserl openly. We could also probably say that at some level, influenced by Freud, Saussure, and a philosopher that you guys are not familiar with, Emmanuel Levinas. We won't talk about Levinas, but these are sort of his influences. Derrida comes on the scene at sort of the height of structuralism 
And so the legend goes, Derrida goes to a structuralist conference and basically obliterates the conference by turning structuralism inside out. And uh, basically unravels everything that, that had been built up to that point. And the way he does that is he offers this new idea, what she, what she calls deconstruction, this new way of thinking about language and meaning and all these sorts of things. This is really, Foucault is somewhat this way, but more so Derrida, the movement away from structuralism into what we call post-structuralism, which will be a critique of structuralism as an objective discipline. He has three major works that I think you should know. He has many, many uh, essays and articles and things like that, but his major works are on grammatology. And these are accessible in most bookstores in the philosophy section. On grammatology, speech and phenomena. And difference. Which is also be sort of an idea that he pushes. These, oh, writing and difference, I'm sorry. I didn't give you the whole title. Writing difference. Which is where he will espouse the idea of difference. But alright, so those are his major words. Let me give you a quick synopsis of what Derrida is going to try to say. He's going to say that Husserl missed it in trying to think that there was such a thing as a transcendental ego. That there was a sort of pure place of consciousness. Where consciousness of happens is in a place of purity. A locatable singularity. He's going to say with Heidegger, in some sense, all we know is the realm of the becoming. And so in the, the point Derrida is going to make is that all we have... All we have is no previous point, no after point. All we have is this sort of place where language moves. All we have is the text. And words and signs and signifiers are constantly slipping away and we're chasing them and chasing them and chasing them. And we're chasing this meaning that will never get here. And so all we have is the movement of language or more specifically, the, all we have is the text. It may not make sense at this point, but hopefully it will as we, as we continue forward. Alright, so Derrida says, oh, I think we have deconstruction metaphysics. I'm just going to put these. These are on your paper, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Metaphysics and presence, is that the last mm -hmm. one? Yeah. Alright, you also have logocentrism. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the good one. Alright, basically Derrida's critique is this. All of philosophy has always been obsessed or looking for, obsessed with presence or singularity, the lost object, with identity. Logocentrism for Derrida emphasized the privileged role that logos or speech has been given in Western philosophy. This means identity, presence, so forth. Now, this is what he means by this. Any aberration such as, let's go to Spinoza. Remember Spinoza said there could only be one thing that had different attributes. There could only be one essence, right? And different modes of that essence. Spinoza was obsessed with finding one unchangeable reality that was fixed, pure, and could be relied upon. 
Descartes had the same issue. Plato had the same issue by looking for the forms. Aristotle had this issue by looking for substance. They've all been looking for what Derrida calls a logos, or a word in some senses, or a fixed locale, a place. And any aberration or anomaly or any change that comes off of that, it's all we're trying to do is chase the system or the chain of difference back to an undifferentiated source. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be logocentric. He thinks that this is futility. He's going to, let's see, Heidegger says, okay, he, with Heidegger, he's going to say, Western philosophy has constantly privileged that which is, or that which appears, and forgotten to pay any attention to, for the condition of that appearance. He's going to say, logocentrism, we've always been obsessed with presence. We have overlooked the conditions of meaning in favor of a meaning such as the difference between being and beings. The reason Derrida thinks this is a problem is because metaphysics and presence have always been searching for something that's never been there at all. An absolute, a pure place, a final object, a home, so to speak, that can be accessed through rigorous discipline and through rigorous philosophy. This is the reason that Derrida sees speech as privileged rather than accounting for how presence of speech has occurred. Alright, so in short, here's how Derrida says it, and I quote, this is from him. The enterprise of returning strategically, ideally, to an origin or to a priority, thought to be simple, intact, normal, pure, standard, self-identical, in order then to think in terms of derivation, complication, deterioration, accident, etc. He's saying right here, what we're looking for is some pure, intact thing so that we can understand derivations from it. He said, all metaphysicians, from Plato to Rousseau, Descartes to Husserl, have proceeded in this way, conceiving good to be before evil, the positive before the negative, the essential before the accidental, the imitated before the imitation, etc. And this is not just one metaphysical gesture among others. It is the metaphysical exigency that which has been the most constant, the most profound, and the most potent. His argument is that we have always sought for a centrality of things, a sort of fixed referential point. This is something you've heard in other philosophers. And what metaphysics does is it installs hierarchies and orders of subordination in dualisms. So logocentrism establishes hierarchies and dualisms. Meaning this. If we're searching for the one pure undifferentiated entity, the Plotinian one, or uh, the Parmenidean one, we're looking for this one undifferentiated entity. That what we do is we create a hierarchy of deviation from that. Does that make sense? Some things are superior to others because they're closer to this undifferentiated source. And we also create dualisms, the good versus the evil. 
the pure versus the impure. Any deviation from the pure is, a, is the impure. So we have these dualisms, light and dark. Um, for he would say, speech and writing. Writing is a deviation. It's always seen as a deviation from the pure presence of speech. He basically saying all metaphysics, all philosophy has been this yearning for one static centralized place that he calls logocentric. Basically, metaphysical thought always privileges one side of an opposition and ignores or marginalizes the alternative. It privileges, logocentrism privileges one side of the duel. privileges one side. Derrida's goal is not going to be just simply to go to the other side, like in a dialectic way, but to obliterate both poles and say that they never had any existence anyway. In a sense, all there is is the fluctuation of the middle. That's all there is, is the play and the openness of the middle. All right? So, he's going to argue that there is a method by which we can see this. And that method he's going to call deconstruction. That sh this should be your B. Deconstruction is the... It's hard to call it a method or an idea. It's rather a reality that's always there that must be seen, that must be recognized. Deconstruction is not something one does, but rather is uh, a condition that already must be played into, or must be sort of tapped into. Deconstruction is it, say no Oh, okay. Um, eh, we'll leave that out. Okay, now that's fair, let's put that in there. Um, one example, and this is just a little side note. One example is the subject-object distinction. Right? In the subject-object distinction, the metaphysics have prefers one over the other in privilege. Different metaphysicians have gone different directions on this. And what deconstruction will show us is that these two poles cannot be separated but are in, in intimately bound to one another, where we cannot find one apart from the other. But, in some sense, these poles are a necessary evil so as to demonstrate the open continuum between them. Does that make sense? Once they're identified, once they're used, uh, subject and object are not real things, but these sort of poles interact are necessary evils to open up the space that exists between them. So deconstruction will be an exercise, will be an exercise which dissolves the notion that I am exterior to the text. Right now, we hold to this metaphysical notion that I am different than what I am reading. 
And so in some sense, what Derrida is, arguing, is going to argue for is the dissolution of those poles and recognize that I am the text. Not that I'm subsumed into that or that it is subsumed into me. But all that we have is the movement of language. All we have, or all that there is, and this is not exclusive to language, it's just the nature of all phenomena, is all we have is sort of this constant play uh, of signs. I know I'm being complicated and, and elusive right now, but I hope to make it more clear as we continue to go. Questions? It sounds like one of those philosophies that doesn't really make any sense on purpose. Yeah, maybe. Like you say, that doesn't make any sense. How can you say that? And then you'll say... The only reason you think it doesn't make any sense is because of you like already think blah, 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 right. blah, blah, you know. Right. And, and it's hard, it's hard, I think, with Derrida because I'm sort of starting from the wrong end here, but I'm trying to set up some major themes so that you can see it to the way he describes everything else. Especially this idea of deferral. I think it'll make more sense when we get to that. Put that there for the time being. All right. Deconstruction is like a parasite not espousing another narrative or theory about the nature of the world in which, partake, in which we partake. It restricts itself to distorting already existing narratives. Deconstruction is a parasite feeding on existing narratives of duality. All right, let me see if I can put this together. You have X over against Y. Reader text. Or author text. You have these beliefs that there are two separate things. Deconstruction doesn't come along and say, all right, here's a new methodology, here's a new idea. Deconstruction only shows that the belief in a writer and a reader dissolves under its own pressure. That if we push it hard enough, we recognize that those two signs of reader and writer are somehow will dissolve into one another and blend. Not just become the same thing, because that's not what he's saying. They don't become the same thing. But the, the losing any significant pole, well, uh, that will sort of disappear. Any fixed location by which we can juxtapose one over against the other. Does that make sense? So he's not introducing a new idea. He's showing how the reality of deconstruction is present in every duality. Deconstruction is sort of a... It dissolves and it tears apart because it shows how the dualities are just arbitrary metaphysical impositions. Sensible to some degree? That's kind of the idea. It's a parasite. It feeds on existing narratives of duality. His goal was not to come along and say, here's the new philosophy. His goal was to say deconstruction is always at work. And he wanted to open up the space for possibilities of varieties of meanings. This is why in literary theory, he's seen as a bad guy from the standpoint of people who are uh, like Mr. Smith because he believes in authorial purpose. There is an author, and the author means something. For Derrida, there is no author, and there is no reader. There's only the text, not an absolute text. What he means by the text is an endless deferral of more text and more text and more text and more text and more text. So there is no stable place to stand, only the infinite deferral of meaning, which is an abomination to many literary theorists, but to others very much a possibility of a new way of thinking about literature.
So, Derrida sees in all metaphysical certainty dualisms, which we mentioned. He's prone to making, um, <clears throat> let's see, Hello, man. Come on, go. Come on, go to the impossible. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Deconstruction only highlights what is already revealed in the text. Again, I'm not feeling super today, so my mind may not be as clear as it normally is. Deconstruction reveals what is already present. Okay. Let's take the example of X and Y again. The problem here, and you've seen this in this, like specifically the search for the subject. Let's take the subject, me, me and world. That's a good. That's a good. I'm in here. It's out there. It is so incredibly difficult in this narrative to find me or the world. Because pushing this narrative far enough, it will be revealed that there's a sort of aporia or a paradox or a conflict in here in which neither one of these poles are entirely visible. We never really see me. Because the more we keep looking for me, we have to we go with the chain of signification, which means this, which means this, and which means this, and which means this, and which means this. And so me is always deferred. I never find it. Same way with world. If we're looking at the world, it's sort of constantly deferred. Never, never going to find the world as a pure thing. I can't get to it. All I have. Bless you. Bless you. All I have is this movement. All I have is the movement of deferral. And deconstruction is showing that that is the reality of things. Which is why Derrida can say the words like this. Go there where you cannot go, to the impossible. It is indeed the only way of coming or going. How many words did you scratch out in those words? <laughs> None in that one. Um, you'll find that in on grammatology, I think, more than anything. Um, or maybe writing indifference. But these things, you can't get here. You can't get here. These are impossible places. The only thing one can do is seek the impossible and thus the, the infinite chain of signification moves things. How is this like anti-structuralist? Seems like it would be... Good question. It's anti-structuralist because the structuralists believe that there was a recognizable long beneath the parole. That even though all we really know is the, the fluctuations of the parole, there was a sort of uh, un, unintended matrix of, of things down here. And the goal was to identify this matrix given the particular conditions. So he's saying there is no like actual, it's just the... Like it's the just sign. this. Okay. That's exactly right. It's just quantum movement. I'm thinking of it like almost like a giant treadmill, like everything's moving. Like they have this web, but everything in this web is moving and changing too. Right, and no point on the web has any existence. Yeah, you can never really track anything down. Wow. Right, right. No point on the web ever is really there. So how does he like justify that we think that there are things? Because it's part of the play. Well, how does he justify the fact there is a play? Because justification is the play. Meaning, like, he doesn't have to say, I see it from here. Okay. He doesn't have to say that because if he says 
there is no here, then his words are equally as arbitrary and floating as the others. And he's okay with that because that's his oh, philosophy. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to justify it because it is just free play or just the constant uh, happening of signs. It's what should happen. It, it's the only thing that will happen is more writing and more writing and more signs and more signs. Deconstruction contends that in any text there are inevitably points of equivocation and undecidability that betray any stable meaning that an author might seek to impose upon his or her text. So, let's take it this way. Author, reader, text. We believe the author has deposited himself, in some sense, into the text. And the goal of the reader is to extrapolate that author's intentions by rigorous study and sort of deferral back through the chains to find out what the author meant. But here's the problem. In a sort of Zeno-type way, there's always a meanwhile. Right? There's always another sign to get to, and another sign to get to, and another sign to get to, and another sign to get to. And so the author is never found. But neither is the reader. Because who am I in the face of this text? I cannot even find myself. All there is, is this. That's it. The text is the sort of the place that gives us the idea that there is an author or a reader. Dualisms. Does that make sense? It makes more sense. The text is just sort of free play of signification. And we try to slow down the text or stop this sort of movement. The deconstruction is there. We built up author and reader as potential poles, but in that narrative, there is a sort of dissolving reality that we must see. He calls that deconstruction. Deconstruction is not something someone does or tries. It's a reality that's there. Now, once I get into motifs, you'll see that a little bit more. So how does this play out in the rest of Derrida's philosophy? Let's get a better picture of it. Some of the things you'll hear with um, Derrida in some of his writings are these motifs, these different categories that I've listed here in, in number three. The first one is speech and writing. Derrida says, you know, for almost all of philosophical history, everybody has privileged speech over writing because of the belief that there is such a possibility as presence. <clears throat> the misguided belief in presence. Remember Plato's argument? Writing is bad because writing is a form of the form. Or art is a form of the form. If Hannah paints a picture, uh, or paints a, a painting, I guess you would say, um, of a human body. Well, the human body is the form of something else, so hers is a form of a form. Does that make sense? Plato's argument that's bad because it's further away from the original. But for Derrida, there is no original. So this preference for speech over writing is an illusory one. There's no reason to prefer speech over writing because speech doesn't give us any more presence than writing does. Speech doesn't guarantee that you understand what I'm saying or that we're appealing to some originary moment of meaning. It's still the same frolicking play of signs that's happening in your brain, the space between us, the time and the event in which it's occurring. It never gets to its absolute concrete 
place. It never gets there. There's no full presence in speech. And so it has no benefit over writing. And in fact, writing is better because it induces more of that distance. Speech proposes to close the distance between the presence of the speaker and the spoken. Writing assumes a distance between the author and the written. And that distance is more opportunity for the play of signification. So, so writing is superior. And then he says, he, he admits to himself that he, 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 wants, he wants that distance. Yes. He, he realizes that no one will fully understand him because there's no him to understand. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Hume saying, you know, I put my pin down and I'm instantly subject to the mm. ca- causes that we have fabricated in our minds. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Exactly. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. Both of you are right on target. According to Derrida, thinkers such as Plato, Rousseau, Saucer, Levi-Strauss have all denigrated the written word and valorized speech because they believe that it's some pure conduit of meaning. <coughs> Derrida attempts to illustrate that the structure of writing and grammatology are more important and even older than the supposed structure of presence to self. The belief here is that speech provides presence to self. But he inverts this. Do you understand this idea of presence to self? That the spoken is like spatially or temporally close to original meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, when I speak, what I speak is accurate to what I meant, but there's no distance or extension in between them, which is for him illusory. And, and he inverts this and says, inverts suggests. Writing is a more proper understanding of the nature of things. And older. And what he means by older, more original, more correct. And there's no origin, it's more accurate. So every time someone says, I can't really put this into words, it's sort of backing this up to some extent. Yeah. I mean, think about you saying, I can't put this into words, but you tried. You've already started the chain of signification that happens in the brain, which starts to unfold it and starts to unfold it and starts to and continues to unfold it. I mean, this has to suggest he does not. He's not necessarily suggesting a sort of apophaticism, which was like, don't say anything at all. In fact, because that would be, in some sense, a retreat to the more absolute space of silence, which is no space at all. So rather, the writing is a good thing. That this continual deferral of things. Is, is the way things are. There's no way to escape it. It's all that there is. There's no subject, there is no object, only the slipping of signs. Alright, so Derrida attempts to illustrate this and he's, he's trying to say that writing is better. He disagrees with prioritized speech and instead argues that all can be claimed of writing is equally true of speech. Speech is better. Then, he has this idea of arc or arcade writing. Overwriting our supreme overarching idea here. And in this idea of a superior view of writing is this infinite deferral of meaning.
think about this. Matthew writes something down. Matthew is going to write a grocery list. His mom says, don't forget about your hot lunch form. When she writes hot lunch down, she already, as an author, distances herself from the writing, thus creating the absent space for more signification to occur in the mind of the reader. The writing itself enables the distance for more signage. <laughs> what? But, uh, Does that make sense? If I am the text, then what, where is the space? I mean... Where, where is the space? Uh, that's, ah, that's hard to say. So Actually, that's all we have is the space. Question. But then I'm not really the text. You are the text. Well, You're not a you, though. Well, isn't, isn't this sort of the whole... In some senses, what I was saying the other day, like, I have the idea of the, uh, I don't know, the grand novel about the blue pencil case. Mm-hmm. I bet as soon as I write down the grand novel, the pencil case, I feel the alienation, and I have to back it up with signs and everything so that people understand it. But then, like, if I don't confess the grand novel of the pencil case, then the pencil case, the grand novel about the pencil case doesn't exist. So it's like, yes, you have to signify it, but if you don't, you know, it's not there, because right. there's nothing, there's, there is nothing that's not being signified or right. said. Right. So, so that's why it's just, that's why everything is the text. Yes, exactly. To Everything me, is the text. That's exactly right. To me, space implies that there's different objects, though, that you can di- differentiate. Yeah, and that's the hard thing about the terms I'm using. That's fair. That's fair critique. Yeah. Yes. I sh- maybe space is the wrong word. It opens up the possibility, maybe, for deferral. Okay. It's, it's predicated upon absence. Kind of like a Heideggerian absence. Like, the absence is... is is the propulsion for the sign. I mean, we don't ever actually see the sign. We see the sign of the sign, or the sign of the sign of the sign of the sign of the sign, you know, we chase it. Um, yeah, it gets, in, it gets into some problems, so I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to be more clear by using those words that are build it incorrectly. So there's an infinite deferral of signs. The speech, the reason he doesn't like this guy speaking is because of the illusion that there's there's a correspondence between this and this. What he said and what he meant. That there's an identity, an undifferentiated pure up there. An undifferentiated pure logocentric meaning and that in speech that, it, that happens. But he obviously recognizes that's not the case because all this sort of happened. I ad infinitum, but it's also happening in this direction. This is very, very, very much like to you know. Okay, does, this, does that make sense? My illustration that there's an infinite number of signs getting here, and also an infinite sign, a number of signs going the other direction. Now, so he says the reason writing is so good is because when something is written, it already assumes a distance between between this originary moment and this. It already opens itself up for interpretation. And that interpretation is the imposition of signs in order to make that uh, idea sensible in every direction. The written acknowledges acknowledges, and because of its concrete nature, its dependence on this chain of signification. So the written is superior and more important and better because it shows more accurately the play of signs. I find it very odd how, how like I said, the Salesforce thing, you know, Zeno was, his argument was trying to support 
sort of the sort of monism and, mm -hmm. and essence that Derrida's out to get with Parmenides. Yes. It's funny. Yeah. That works. And I think that's at some level is people have argued that Derrida it not maybe not me a monist but is by trying to obliterate metaphysics establishes the most metaphysical thing there is, which is difference. Because all this is is difference moving. So he establishes a more absolute difference than any kind of singularity of metaphysics or origin. He establishes difference as the metaphysical condition. So some people argue that Derrick sort of walks himself into his own trap. And so he ends up having to posit that there is this one thing or one condition which is difference. Which I think that's why theology of the infinite outwits it. Because God as infinite doesn't have to be um, he is differentiated and unified. So I, I, I don't know. There's there's people that are doing work on this sort of thing. But um, nonetheless, let me try to get a couple more points out here. So he thinks the written is superior. Writing refers to a more generalized notion, or arc writing refers to a more generalized notion of writing that insists that the breach that the written introduces between what is intended to be conveyed and what is actually conveyed. Did you hear that word, breach? The writing acknowledges that there's a rupture between intent and visibility. Do you understand what I mean by that? All right. So the departure from from the the text from its home is a tearing. Right. These two things are sort of ruptured. Writing acknowledges that, and this is typical of any originary breach that affl uh, that afflicts everything one might wish to keep sacrosanct, including the notion of self presence. Writing embraces the rupture or breach. Now, just like me trying to find me, there is a rupture in my own interpretation of myself because I'm sort of always distanced from my originary essence, whatever that may be, which is not there. I'm in a constant play of looking for me, sort of like in a Lacanian uh, linguistic way. I never get to the place where I find me. Even the idea that I'm present unto myself is always an object of me looking for myself in signification. I must use signification to show myself to myself. So signification will always provide a space between me and me. Did that make sense? There's always a space between me and myself. Because there is no me. There's only that play of signs that's causing that reality, or that we think that, that uh, that's between, or in the space, as you would say. There is no me to find. Now, the important thing here, the important thing here is that I think if you're thinking of the, if you're if you'll put this in the back of your head, Thomistic notions of actuality, that God is actual unto himself, is always self-present, will be an interesting possibility in thinking through Derrida's ideas of differentiation and presence as we get that far. All right. So there's always a rupture in writing. The spoken is itself always at distance from any supposed clarity of the conscience or of the consciousness. Um, let's say by accident, our repetition is split. The absence makes it necessary. For us not near to us. All right. Um, 
The process of differing and deferring found within linguistic representation are symptomatic of a general situation that afflicts everything. The, the conditions that writing illuminates affects all. It affects everything. This is not just a, a little lesson in grammar or something like that. This is a reality that affects every distance between the present and the, and the deviation from that. That if this thing is what is looked for, all of the attempts to find it, there is no that. That is not there. There's only this. This chase. And all we're doing is we're seeing the tracks left behind of the thing or the identity that we're searching for. We're always looking in the tracks. We're always chasing what he calls the trace. We always see the grooves left behind. We're always looking for it. And that is, and that is present in a book most clearly or in writing because chasing for the author's meaning is always by looking at letters or looking at words and thinking of other words and other words and other words trying to find that writer and never getting to him because there is no writer there is no meaning that that writer had or trying to figure out how does the text what does the text mean for me it's like looking for me I can't find me either all there is is all these X's which is all text does that make sense? So everything is the text. Any logocentric place or duality, I'll make it Y, any place, there is no place. There's only the text. Everything is the text. Which is why to use, uh, when Isaac was talking about putting things into words, it's sort of like saying the only thing that we have is the surface. There's nothing before or after the surface. All we have is the surface itself. And the That's, surface is a movement, a deferral of signs towards other signs and other signs and other signs. It's, it's as if Heidegger and Sartre's idea of time has shifted the, the, the paradigm of philosophy now. Oh, oh you mean as if there's no, no past and no future. Right, 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 right. Yeah, radically present, radically now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's true. To some degree that... Um, I think that uh, I don't have this in our notes, but Derrida does do some stuff on time, and um, I think his his work given time. You can see some of that. But all right, all right. Let's move on to one more. Do you have the words uh, spatial differing and temporal deferring? We have deferrals. Okay, let's talk about that really briefly. And we'll talk about this more tomorrow. He introduces a neologism, a new word that he calls difference. Now, the interesting thing is that in French, there's no real audible difference, this is so cool, between this word and this word. He has cleverly shown that the only place that difference is visible is in writing, not in speech. Does that make sense? He, there's no audible difference between these two, but it's only visible when it's written. 
which is showing that writing is always about what is not there rather than what is. Writing is about the movement towards other signs and constant supplements, supplementarity, more and more and more and more and more and more. So writing is supreme. The principal reality of this writing is the difference. And when he says difference, he means two things. He means that there is one, a spatial sort of difference or differing. Meaning, it's this word is connected to this word, this word, and so on. That each word opens up the movement of difference to every other word. But, it also means a temporal deferring. means meaning never arrives. It never gets here. Difference is the way of things. The opening up to more signage and more signage and more signage and more signage and it never stops because meaning never arrives. It never gets here. It's constantly deferred. And this play of deferral is what we know to be things. I love the word play, and I'm glad it's I'm glad he's French, so that it makes sense even in our language. Mm. Because in our languages are so similar. Right. This difference, what I want you to get from Derrida is that everything exists on the surface of text. And there is no place before it. There's no long beneath it, a system of interrelations that precede it. There's no analytical absolute that is in another place. There's no Husserl-like transcendental ego that precedes it. The language is all that there is. And so as a result, your own understanding of yourself is the language, is the text. You'll never get to you but you chase it, and so the supplementarity of language continues. It always continues. And one cannot, uh, in some senses, cease to avoid that. Someone cannot, or, or rather, someone cannot avoid that. Someone can cease for that to be. It's always the nature of things. It will always be deferring. It will always be differing. That is the way of things, is difference. It continues and continues and continues to happen. And so we're constantly in the play of that, of that reality. Questions, comments, thoughts? We're, we're about out of time. Confusions? No. This seems kind of like anticipated almost. Yeah. yeah I could definitely see it coming. It's because we've been talking about it. Yeah. yeah. These thoughts have been handled very long in our minds. Oh, yeah. We were. Like from the con, you know, finding yourself. Right. Natural Christian. Let me make one quick plug for Christian theology. And it's this. If you want a more robust Christian theology, I think you're going to want one that interacts with Derrida because the, the figures that recognize this is an important issue, this rupture of breach. 
What if, consider the possibility, that what if the infinite play of signs was not because it was a separation or a rupture from an identity that never was? A sort of signs that are always looking for a lack or an emptiness that never is there. But rather, if you look at the play of signs, were constantly their originary breach was not a breach at all, but originarily a gift. What gift theologians have tried to say is that Derrida is right, that everything is the surface. But what David Bentley Hart argues is that the words are a covenantal promise of a, of a horizon of the infinite. So that, that probably doesn't make any sense to anybody, but keep it in your mind. Peace be with you.